into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this time this morning where we can come and worship you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will be with us this morning. Lord, that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Lord, we pray that it will change us that it will transform us, and that we will leave this place uh, just a little bit different than the people we came in as. And in your name we pray, amen. So in the scripture today, we see Jesus' first act of ministry. Uh, In Mark so far, we have seen John the Baptist prepare the way for Jesus by attempting to warn us, you could say, that the Savior we have been waiting for is perhaps a very different savior than the one we have been expecting. He is one that comes from the wilderness, he's unpredictable, he breaks boundaries, and he doesn't fit in any mold that we have created in our minds for him to fit in. And then we see Jesus appear, and he begins to call his disciples so that he can start his ministry. And the first thing that Jesus does is perform an exorcism which is, at the time, not in itself that rare. What was rare is that Jesus uses his own authority to cast out the demon, rather than a higher authority. And this is why those in the synagogue were amazed, because the demons listened to Jesus by his own authority. It makes sense that they were amazed, but I don't think that's the only amazing thing about this passage. I am more amazed at what kind of God this is, rather than that this is God. I am amazed that Jesus' first act of ministry was to tend to a man who needed help, who needed to be set free. Jesus' first order of business wasn't to preach a sermon, or to create the bylaws, or head to the religious authorities to reveal who he was. His first order of business was to be with the people who need him. Starting in the very next passage, Jesus goes on a healing streak. And this first message we receive from Jesus is that our God is here, God is with us, and God will set us free. One of the details that stood out to me in this passage was that the unclean spirit speaks, is when the unclean spirit speaks, First, it speaks on behalf of itself and the man. It uses the pronoun us as if they are one. And then quickly changes to using the pronoun I, 
when acknowledging that it knows that Jesus is the Son of God. I'll read those verses again so you can hear. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Sometimes I think we believe we are our unclean spirits. We believe we are our insecurities, our addictions, our negative feelings, our bad experiences. The unclean spirit uses the pronoun us as if they are one. But they are not one. And Jesus demands the unclean spirit to leave the man. How often we let our demons do the talking. A very literal example of this is my great aunt, who's about 85, and she's fairly with it except for the usual elderly loss of a filter and sensitivity when speaking. Uh, <clears throat> I'm waiting for the day when I can claim this uh, as an excuse for my behavior. But I don't think I qualify for that age yet. Um, she's a great person, but she doesn't always show it. Uh, so for instance, she lives in a, uh, an elderly community, and my mom will go visit her. And uh, one of the nursing staff will be in my aunt's room, and my aunt will be pretty rude to them. And then they'll leave, and my aunt will turn to my mom and say, I don't know why I was so mean to her. I actually like her. Another example of this uh, was Christmas dinner. I get the job of being the token prayer because, well, I'm the token pastor of the family. Uh, but most of my family is Catholic, so if they pray for a meal, it's normally a memorized prayer they recite. Because praying with your own word makes them slightly uncomfortable, which is why I do it. Um, <laughs> Normally, this, it, it came back to hurt me this time. Uh, normally, I would just pray a generic prayer uh, to satisfy their request. But this night, I decided to give a more heartfelt prayer because we hadn't even eaten dinner yet and three people had already cried. So we were in for a very long night. <laughs> uh, so I figured people might appreciate this attempt at caring. So <laughs> I think you, got, you guys all know where this is going. <laughs> So I'm like two sentences into the prayer when the same great aunt just yells, Amen. <laughs> Clearly not done. So everyone, including myself, starts laughing. And she turns to her neighbor and whispers, although it's audible enough for all of us to hear, that she's sorry, but she's ready to eat. <laughs> Genuine prayer is not appreciated. Noted. <laughs> so I hurried up and finished. For my own sake, I'm going to assume that this is just another one of those times where she doesn't actually intend to be rude, but it just happens anyway. But we all have our demons. Our addictions, our mental health issues, our insecurities, hurt from our pasts, all which imprison us to act like someone we don't want to act like. We all need to be exercised of something, maybe multiple things. These things keep us from acting as we would want to, 
as we imagine ourselves acting. You know how you imagine in your mind how you want to come across, how you want to be perceived, but then in reality you realize you come across completely different? This idea reminds me of when the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but that evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Are we letting our sin define us? Are we letting our demons do the talking? The thing about this passage that can be tricky is we can so easily fall into a trap where we think it is our duty to get our demons under control. We think it is our responsibility to fight our demons. And then when it doesn't work, we let that sin or those demons possess even more of ourselves because we feel we are less worthy now that we couldn't fix it. This isn't our work to do, though. This is a work that God has already done and that God will continue to do. God is the one that does the work of casting out our demons. It is not our battle to fight. Our only job is to believe that we are not our demons. Sure, there are things we can do to live into the person God created us to be, but only after we believe that God created us as good and holy and beautiful. Parker Palmer, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, beautifully puts it this way. Before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life tell you what truths you embody what values you represent. We are all born in the image of God. These values and these truths are embedded within us, just waiting for us to enact them. God created us in his image and has given us lives worthy to be lived. We are all on a journey of seeking the freedom that God desires for us. And part of this journey is doing the hard work of giving ourselves over to God by letting go of our own control, of our own idea of what our life should look like, of our desire to be who society wants us to be, rather than who God has called us to be. The more we give over this control, the more we will be able to listen for who God says that we are and for what our life intends to do with us. Jesus has authority over these unclean spirits in our lives. He silences them and takes away their power. They are cast out and no longer a part of who we are. A couple months ago, my therapist interpreted a dream of mine, which I'll admit, I'll admit at first I was skeptical. It's a weird thing. But honestly, this was one of the most liberating experiences that I've ever had. I'm not going to tell you my dream, but I'll tell you what I learned. I learned that sometimes I hold myself back from being who I long to be. Or rather, it's not me, 
but it is my insecurities, my doubts about who God has said that I am. Sometimes I see other people and I'm like, ooh, I want that personality trait and that personality trait. It's as if I'm picking from a smorgasbord of personality traits instead of being who God created me to be. By realizing that God has affirmed who I am, my weirdness and all, faults and all, insecurities and all, now I be can begin to let go of all the things I feel I should be, but I'm not. Now those demons have less power over me, and I give them less power by giving God more power because Jesus takes away their power. He takes away the power of those voices in your head that tell you you are not good at your job, you're not a good parent or child or spouse. Those voices that tell you you should be like that person or feel this way. The voices that convince us these lies are who we are or that cause us to question where God is in our lives. And this isn't a bad question to ask. In fact, I think it needs to be asked continually because the only way you get an answer is by asking a question. So where is God? We ask this in regards to where God is in our individual lives, but also where God is in the world. On Friday, on my day off, I was attempting to relax, so I decided to watch a Grey's Anatomy episode Yes, I'm one of the few people that still watches Grey's Anatomy 13 years later. Uh, and there, there will be spoilers for the new episode, so I hope that's okay. I thought about it, and then I realized probably no one here watches Grey's Anatomy, so I'm safe. Wait, they're yeah, it's still on. It's still on 13 years. I no I, I, most people don't. <clears throat> Only like two of the original characters are still alive. Um. <laughs> okay, that was a spoiler. <laughs> If you, were, if you didn't already watch it, you're, you're not. Are you going to watch it? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I always find it interesting when shows like this in the media uh, try and tackle questions of theodicy or the divine. Uh, and this episode that I watched um, had so much theology in it. Um, and I'm especially interested in how they deal with it. Surprisingly, I was okay with their conclusion. The show ended with the question, where is God now? And the episode deals with a 12-year-old African-American boy who was shot and killed because he was trying to enter his own house, a man who was abusive to multiple women he had dated, who was then killed by a drunk driver, a woman who died af hours after she gave childbirth, and a teenage boy who took the Bible so literally, he tried to cut off his right hand because the Bible says if it's causing you to sin, you should cut it off. April, who is the token Christian doctor, struggles to make sense of all of these patients throughout the course of the episode. At the end, she finds herself questioning why the God she loves would allow all this suffering. And like I said, the episode ends with the question, where is God now? Uh, so I watched this to relax, and clearly that didn't help. Had the opposite effect. I spent the entire weekend contemplating theodicy. 
which I enjoy, but it's exhausting. Um, but we all have our personal demons, and this episode brings to light some of the world's demons. And we can easily fall into the trap that the world is defined by its demons, that the world is defined by its oppressiveness, its unjustness, its cruelty. And I think it's easier sometimes to let these demons speak for the world. But it's not the whole story. It's not that simple. In the Grays episode, the abusive man who died, his organs went to save multiple deserving people. The woman who gave birth, she did die, but she was able to bring new life into the world. The teenage boy who was going to cut off his hand, the doctor was able to convince him that maybe reading the Bible literally isn't the most accurate way to read scripture, thankfully. As for the young African-American boy who died, I can't pinpoint where the redemption is in that. And maybe we won't see God in a way where we can point and say, there. There's the redemption. But I don't think that means God wasn't there. I think God is weeping with that family. I think God is angry. I think God is equipping people with skills and passions to make sure that there will be a day when injustices like this will no longer happen. And I think God is in the community of people that will surround that family and point to hope and redemption. You see, the job of the church is to point to hope for the people who are currently not in a place to see hope, to voice things that some of us can't currently voice. The church is a community that helps remind us of God's steadfast love, even when we are living our worst nightmare. Earlier, I made a comment about how we let our demons do the talking, about who we are, about the state of the world. But that's only part of the story. The church needs to tell the other part, the part that says our God is here, the part that believes we are good and holy and beautiful, and so is the world. This part of the story becomes louder when we remind ourselves that our God reigns, when we allow the voices of our demons to be silenced by giving more power over to who God has said we are. We need to tell the whole story. Our demons do not define us. They do not define this world. God is here, and just like the man in the scripture today, he came to set us free from the lies that we are told we are. And one of the most beautiful things about a community of faith is that when we are unable to tell this part of the story, our community can tell it for us until we can see it for ourselves again. Amen.